Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Let's get into our sermon series. We are in, um, gosh, what is it, week three, week three, week three of our Psalm 51 sermon series. And uh, let me just catch you up. If you're joining us, you haven't been here for this, or this is relatively new to you, David has been reeling uh, from his sin. He's recounting his shame and his guilt. He's owning his brokenness. And today in the narrative, in this, in this poem, this song written by David out of the season of guilt and shame, we see a shift. And so what we're going to be talking about today is um, the trust issues that exist that we have, our trust issues, and then what might be the most important realization that a Christian can make along the journey with God. So those are kind of the things we're going to land in today. Um, in order to get there, I have to make, uh, I, think, I think it's a prognostication, I'm not sure, maybe it's a statement. Um, I think every family, and you can tell me if I'm wrong on this, I think every family has a kid who can't keep his shirt clean at school. Do you know what I'm talking about? A couple of parents, a couple of mothers are going, oh man. So um, I was, in my family, uh, the child who could never come home clean from school. I always came home with stains, whether it's grass stains from recess, chocolate milk down the front of my shirt, doesn't matter what it is. I mean, some of them we didn't know what they were, I didn't want to say, and you just go, mom, I'm so sorry. I went to Catholic school, and so I wore a you know, perfectly white button-down short-sleeve um, Dwight Schrute shirt every single day, and forest green long pants every day. And every day I'd come home with a new hole in my pants, a new stain somewhere, the shirt's all messed up. And every day my mom would somehow take this and renew it and make it clean again. There's a picture, I have a picture of me as a kid, so you can just see, oh, I mean, he doesn't mean any harm, guys. He's trying his best. What happens right after this is probably I get the hook out of the fish's mouth and then wipe my hands down my shirt and then wonder why my shirt wasn't clean later in the day. But um, that was the picture of the one child in my house who couldn't stay clean. But like I said, I knew where to go to get my shirt clean because every morning I went back to Catholic school the next day, I, every morning I'd go back in a perfectly clean little uniform. And it happened because there was one person who I knew to take my stained clothing to. I knew to take my mother all of my things to go, I'm so sorry, I don't know how this happened, but is there any way I can show up not looking like a vagrant tomorrow? And she'd say yes, and she'd figure it out, and, and we'd do it all again the next day. And that, if it makes any sense, we'll get there. But that's what today's all about, is knowing where to go to get ourselves clean. So we pick up in Psalm 51, David says this, cleanse me with hyssop, I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast from me your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So David, I said, he's kind of pivoting here. There's this shift happening. And what he's asking for, he's asking the Lord of heaven to cleanse him with hyssop. We'll say, okay, that's interesting. What is that? David is inviting and invoking a priestly cleansing. In the Old Testament, in Numbers and in Leviticus, there's a, a priestly cleansing that is laid out. There's these certain kind of ritualistic things that have to happen for somebody to be made clean. And specifically, 
he's invoking the one that cleanses someone from either uh, being in contact with someone who has leprosy, which therefore would count you among the lepers and make you unclean societally, or having touched a dead body, which would also make you ritualistically unclean in the Jewish world. So, so David, in invoking this specific sort of cleaning ritual, is making two interesting allusions, I think. See, he sees his sin as making him profoundly unclean, and he's actually, I don't know, if I think he's actually counting himself as among the diseased and the dead due to his sin. Now, I can't say that for sure. He doesn't say clearly, I count myself among the diseased and the dead. But to ask for the cleansing that goes with these two specific sins is really interesting. And to me, I think he's actually making this allusion to say, what I've done counts me as outward, as wayward, as broken, as those who aren't even allowed in the city, those who aren't allowed into worship, those who can't come in and be part of this thing because they are ritualistically unclean, they're forbidden. And David is seeing his own sin honestly, and he's starting to say, you know, I'm not going to wiggle out of this anymore. I can't justify this anymore. I can't minimize this anymore. When I see what I've done, it makes me as though I was dead. And so what we get to see first is the depth of the damage of our sin. In a world of infinite distraction, it's easy to look the other way. It's easy to minimize. David calls for a woman who isn't his wife. David gets her pregnant, has her husband killed, tries to cover it up. God, in punishing David, then takes this son that was conceived over David's pleading and his fasting. And what did David say we saw in previous weeks? David said in, in Psalm 51, 3 and 4, he said, for I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me, and against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So David says, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David, you see, is recognizing the damage he's done, and ultimately, he's recognizing that the most critical offense is against God. He's sinned against the Lord, he's sinned against his maker, he's sinned against his sustainer, and his sin is an, is an active action that evidences a lack of trust in God. So he's saying, in the way you're punishing me, I earned it. I deserve that. He's finally coming to honest accounting of his sin. He's going, yeah, I get what, what you've done to me. I, I earned that and more. But sin is always a lack of trust in God. All sin, and we can start going through them in your head. Okay, what about, what about, what about? All sin is evidence of lack of trust in God. So if you steal... There's a lack of trust in God to provide. If you kill, there's a lack of trust in God to bring justice. It's not just the big obvious ones. It's not just the Ten Commandments. But as you go through the statutes of God, if you go through the teachings of Jesus, you, can, you can't run across something that isn't a sin evidencing lack of trust. Exodus 20, the first commandment, since I mentioned the commandments, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Some have suggested, and I would agree, that sin is always evidence of this command being broken. You can always trace sin back to this command being broken somewhere along the way. In our unwillingness to trust God to be God, most often we insert ourselves as God. We become the God of our own day. We become the king of our own castle. We want to do our own thing. We become first in our lives. We become central in our desires. Our needs matter more than anyone else's. And so I run my life. And usually, for modern people, usually the way we end up in sin is we're seeking comfort. 
And that sounds odd, like, you know, it's not, not like a soft pillow. I'm seeking some action, some behavior, some tonic, some whatever to comfort me and heal the brokenness inside of me. And so I end up in sin because I'm seeking comfort because there's something not quite right and I try to make it right or at least, at least push it away long enough that I can feel like all is right in the world. So if I'm lusting, like not, not acting, just looking too long, if I'm lusting, what is that about? That means that my appetite in that moment reigns supreme, that God's instructions on how I should live my life have given way and my appetite is what reigns supreme. His provision and love and satiation of me becomes secondary because I want what I want and I want it now. I'll consume when I'm ready, Lord. If I cheat on my taxes to get ahead financially, I don't report this or I kind of hide that, even a little bit here and there then what shows up is my ambition reigns supreme. My ambition has come before God's instruction for me to be a person of integrity and honesty. My ambition and my desire for something takes center stage. If I gossip about my neighbor to grow my status, everybody likes to be the person in the neighborhood that people go to when stuff goes down. Then what happens is my approval is reigning supreme. I want other people to look to me as someone important doesn't matter what sin you apply. It doesn't matter what behavior you apply. We can find it anywhere, whether it's that extra drink we didn't need or it's the whole bag of Cheetos at two in the morning, whatever it is, drunkenness or gluttony, that's what I was trying to say. No matter what it is, it evidences that somewhere in us, we've decided to trust self and our desire and gratify self and our desire over God. If you, have, if you ask the question around a behavior, if you say, is this is this in line with God's will for my life or am I out of um, step with who's king of my world? A question you can ask is who is being gratified and glorified in this? So if I, if I have an action and I go, well, no one else will know it's a sin. But if I think at the end of the day, who's being gratified and glorified by this behavior, if it's me, odds are I'm out of line with God's desire in my life in that moment. And that can be in a good thing. That can be a, a manipulative good deed done so to make myself look better. So I'm not being generous anymore. Now I'm manipulating someone to think highly of me. And so we have to be careful, but we also, it, it's a tough little line to draw to go, what, where in my life am I acting and behaving to glorify myself? And where in my life am I acting and behaving to glorify God? Usually, when we find that it's ourselves, it's a sobering moment. We've put ourselves above God because we don't trust him as God. So David says all sin is against God. This is how all sin is against God because all sin says, God, I, I don't know if I trust you to provide. I don't know if I trust you to protect me. I don't know if I trust you to, to make sure the world is going to run right. So I'll take it into my own hands. When we sin, then the, the secondary part of this is we try to fix it ourselves. Americans are good at this. We DIY people. We're strong, we're tough, good ideas. We have YouTube. If we don't know how to do something, someone's done it and recorded it, and so we find it. So we, we attempt to fix ourselves. We attempt to justify ourselves. We try harder. I, I just learned about this thing called Sober October. Have you heard of Sober October? People anticipating um, the revelry of November and December, knowing that they're going to be overindulging for months, decide to do Sober October as a way to um, I don't know. <laughs> Make them feel better about November and December? I don't know. I'm not opposed to Sober October. Get in there. You know, have fun with that. Um, 
But it's a, it's a uniquely kind of American idea. Well, I'm going to be pretty sinful, so I'm going to be real good for just a couple weeks here. Okay, you know, do your thing. It, it, it shows we are always trying to make plans to make ourselves right. And how does that end? We grouped this section of Scripture today together for a reason. It's this pivot point in the psalm. I said David goes from processing his sin and kind of thinking about his sin to then yearning and seeking cleansing and healing. Like the time for processing is over. The time for recounting is over. Now I need to be healed and whole. And so what he's saying is there's a recognition that nothing short of God's intervention can do that for him. There's nothing short of what God is going to do that, that can get him to healed. Verse 7, he wants to be whiter than snow. See, David's not seeking better. David's seeking best. And I think we have to be careful with that. We often want to just be a little better. I want, I want God to dust me off and let me keep doing my thing. And what David is asking for is not a little better. David's asking for best. God, I want you to cleanse me, heal me, make me white as snow, brand new. And so often, we actually don't want white as snow. We want dusted off and return to our own lordship. And David is saying, the only way I'm getting back to you is if you're fully in charge again. Only you can do it. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 1.18, it writes this, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. It's a beautiful idea that, that over and over, God sees us as stained as we can be, as dirty as we can become, and God says, I alone can make you clean. Only he can bring us back to perfect cleanliness. Which is why in verse 10, David says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David is appealing to God to do what David can't. And he's recognizing that the heart is the source of his waywardness and his wickedness. He, he wants a pure heart. And we, last week, we went through all the different scriptures that show that the heart is desperately wicked and the heart is desperately wayward and, and the heart is the source of all unclean things. So only a pure heart can lead to a pure life. Jesus taught the same. The Pharisees were arguing with Jesus about hand washing because of course they were arguing about hand washing. Jesus tells a parable and the disciples don't get it and they're like, but what does that mean? So he says, let me tell you plainly, in Matthew 15, Jesus says, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Jesus says, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. Not the, not the whether you wash your hands ritualistically before you do the certain thing. He says, what's evil in you comes from within you, which just upholds what it says in Jeremiah, what it says in the Proverbs, what it says in the Psalms, is that this thing that we feel like, you know, when someone says, you know, I think all, I believe all people are, are like good. I think good people are good. It, it, deep inside, I think everybody's a good person. And I think that's a nice sentiment that totally runs counter to what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that all people want to be good people, but all of us are wayward and wicked, therefore requiring Jesus. And that's hard to hear because that, that's not a friendly thing to tell people. Hi, would you like to join our faith? Yeah, what's your pitch? You're wicked. <laughs> it's better in here. You're like, Oof. that's a tough one. But Jesus said it. What comes, the evil that is in the world comes from within us. 
Jesus is after clean hearts, not clean hands. That's what God's after, undoes generations of practice. So Jesus' words undo all these generations of people who have made a ritual out and religion out of all the things trying to become clean. Jesus says only God can cleanse you. David was in an idea, and yet we investigate every way around it, don't we? Even when we're trying to, to deal with the sin in our lives, even when we're trying to deal with the problems we've run into, we investigate all of our own paths out of it. I had a college roommate, uh, my sophomore year in college, we show up, like, it's my first apartment, right? I got an apartment, this is, I'm big now, out of the dorms, into the apartment, got a friend who had just moved to town, and so he's with me, and we're so excited, we can't wait. It's kind of a weird first semester together. I end up moving to St. Louis from Austin for months to go part, be part of a lung transplant, so he's like alone in his big boy apartment now. I come back in late December from my ordeal, and he's failed out. I was like, well, this didn't last very long. We got like two months together, and you're done. I was like, well, what'd you tell your parents? And he's like, yeah, nah, I'm not going to tell them. What, what do you mean you're not going to tell him? He's like, well, I'm going to think of something. I'll figure something out. I'm like, well, you're not in school anymore, so how's that going to work? He's like, well, they, do, they send money, and then I pay for all the stuff, and so I'm just, I'm just going to see what happens. So we saw what happens in January and March and April. and In May, he finally, having not come up with a good reason why um, he was not going to be going back to school in the fall, he said, oh, by the way, I failed out in December. I haven't gone to school in five months. It wasn't a good day for him. Couldn't outsmart the system. There was no way back in. There was no justification for being out. It didn't stop him from trying. He spent months trying to figure out a way to get out of his situation. He couldn't do it. So eventually, he called his mom, which I would say he appealed to a higher power. <laughs> he could have called his dad. That wouldn't have gone real well. He called his mom. His mom came, helped us clean up the apartment, moved him out. That was the end of the story. How long does it take us to get there, though? To, we, we run and hide. We justify and deny. We scheme and strategize. How long does it take us to invoke the higher power? Say, I don't know if I can get out of this on my own. We have a loving God who will come and clean us up. Just dust you off, but make you white as snow. And make David's prayer your prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew, he says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. And I think this is interesting because you alone, Lord, can cleanse me. You alone can clean me. But, but there's more even to it. One, we need to be clean. But then David prays for something else, a steadfast spirit to be renewed within him, which means what? We not only need God's help to be made clean, but we need God's help to stay clean. We need God's help to put us on the right path, but then we need God's help to keep us on that path. And so often we like, can you clean me off? Thank you. Back into my life, back on the treadmill, back into the mud, back into the mire. And, and we, we treat God like a, like a cleaning service, like he's the laundry service with uh, my seven-year-old Catholic schoolboy outfit where it's like, clean me up and I'm right back in the mud. And what the scripture would tell us is that when we appeal to God to clean us, to make us whole, to make us pure, the second half of that prayer has to be, and then create in me a steadfast spirit that I might walk this path faithfully with you. Remain in me. Steadfastness. Jesus again, John 15. Jesus says, you are already clean 
because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus is saying, I I make you clean. I'm making you clean. Here's how you continue to stay clean. Here's how you stay with me. Here's how you stay on the path. Here's how you walk this life out. It's not a one-off thing. It's a rest of your life obedience. Jesus says, you have to remain in me. Our perseverance and our resilience, our uh, stick-to-itiveness, which I looked up to make sure it's a word, and apparently it's a word. Stick-to-itiveness, that's a thing we get in Jesus. We think that's a thing we get in us, that he'll make us clean, but then I got to find my own grit and I got to get through it on my own. And the Bible would say, and Jesus would say, there's nothing you're going to do on this earth that's going to be worth anything unless it's coming out of the root of me. He is the source for our goodness. He's the source for our purity. And Jesus would say, I'm the source of your steadfastness. Your best ability to walk the path is only to stay rooted in Jesus. Jesus doesn't intend to make you clean, to forgive your sins, to wipe away your shame, to get rid of your guilt, to say, I've got you, so that he might throw you back to the wolves. And yet, how many of us get back on the same treadmill once we've been made clean? We repeat the same mistakes over and over. We find ourselves in the same circumstance, in the same predicament, in the same sin habit, and we go, how did I get here again? And the answer of how we get there again is we weren't rooted in Jesus, that we treated Jesus like a laundromat that cleaned us up, and we ran right back out in the mud. And what David is asking God for, what Jesus tells us explicitly is true, is that the way we find ourselves in clean living, the way we find ourselves in the beautiful life he's created for us, the way we find ourselves in the flourishing that he's designed for us is to find ourselves in him, rooted in him. Nothing less. Jesus is our path. Jesus is the way of righteousness. Jesus is the way of love. Jesus is the way of life and mercy and grace. It's not enough to walk out sin and be cleaned. So often we, we live this life where we think, if I can just get through this, if I just get over this hurdle, if I can just get past this thing, then I'll be okay. And that's not how it works. I'm guilty regularly of, of doing that with the calendar. You ever have these seasons, if I can just get to... This is maybe one of them for you. If I can just get through the holidays, that starts real soon. If I can just get through the holidays, then we'll get back to normal. Then we'll start doing the thing. Then I'll get to that good habit I meant to be doing this whole time. If I can just get through that company coming over for that week, then I'll get to cleaning the house, or then I'll go ahead and remodel the kitchen, or then I'll, if I can just then, is how we often live our lives. If I can just then. And that's white-knuckling language for white-knuckling behavior. Jesus is saying there's no, there's no if and then in me. If you can just stay rooted in me, then all the rest will be added to you. If you just stay rooted in me, then you don't have to wait for the season to come to get after the thing you meant to do. If you just stay rooted in me, then you don't have to white knuckle your way through trying to avoid this sin or this habit or this problem or this relational dynamite. You you just stay in me and I got you. And it doesn't mean that all problems go away. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be weary. It doesn't mean that life won't get hard. It doesn't mean there won't be persecution. It means that in him, you are safe and you are secure. In him, you are whole and you are loved. In him, you have the capacity to live out the life he's called you to. 
And what sin is, is when we fail to live out the life we've been called to. We just fall short. Didn't quite get that day right. Didn't quite get that interaction right. Didn't quite get that relationship right. What happened? Somewhere along the path, I decided to take it upon myself. In my strength, in my power, in my goodness, I could get this done. And my best effort falls short of what Jesus sets aside for me. And so when we find ourselves in him, it changes everything. And as people who are in church on a Sunday morning, the challenge is how do we get to a place where we're not showing up on Sunday morning in hopes that we'll fill up on Jesus for a minute before we head back out into the mud? I'll feel better when I sing the worship song. I'll feel better. I'll get forgiven. I'll, I'll say a prayer and I'll go right back out in the mud. How do we get to a place where this is not the pinnacle of our week that then slides us right back down into where we've come from, but that this becomes the checkpoint on a week of a life of consistent, faithful, steadfast rootedness in the Savior? Like David, we need to find a new prayer, one of humility. David's prayer in verse 12 is, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. How do we stay rooted in Jesus? David lays it out, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. When we forget how we got here, when we forget what the joy of salvation was, then we forget the life we're called to lead. But when I remember I once was lost and I now am found, I once was a wretch and he calls me a saint. I was... I was an orphan and he calls me his son. Only when I run back through my own personal story of being found and rescued by Jesus do I find the inspiration to stay rooted in Jesus every day. When I forget the story of salvation, I no longer walk in the story of salvation. I begin to walk in a story of my own creation. And so for you today, maybe the invitation is, as we pray like David, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Maybe the invitation for you is to walk back through your own story of salvation. When you were made clean for the very first time, when you recognized that Jesus came to rescue you for the very first time, what was, that? what was that experience for you? What did he rescue you from? And rooted in the joy of that salvation, would you live out of that every day, the flourishing he called you out of? That we might pray that we would steadfastly walk the narrow path and live out the way he's called us to. That's how, as a community, we'll get right with him. That's how, as a community, we can be clean with him. And that's how, as a community, we begin to live out life in BG as it is in heaven. When we begin to operate as heavenly people, rooted in heavenly things, only then does heaven come to earth. Let's pray. Father, this is... Uh, a challenge. Lord, for me, it is a challenge. I, I can imagine it's a challenge for all of us. The idea that, um, Lord, you're calling us to more than a momentary cleansing. You're calling us to more than a, a momentary relationship, but an all of life tethering to you. Father, my prayer for our community is as we look about our lives, as we do take stock and inventory of, of who we are and where we are, Lord, we would be able to see that the places where we lack flourishing are places we lack you. The places that we're off and wayward where we're struggling in sin are places that you are not present in our lives because we have not invited you in. So Father, today, my, 
my prayer is that we would be a people humble enough like David to see ourselves or who we really are, and, and we would be a people humble enough like David that we would ask for you to come and invade every aspect and every instance of our day. Lord, we desire to live out your goodness and your flourishing. Father, so lead us from temptation and lead us into your presence that we might do your kingdom work here and now. God, we love you. Thank you for Jesus, for the joy of our salvation. We lift you up, we lift him up, and we lift all of this up in his name. Amen.